Technology is evolving at a pace unheard of, bringing with it a plethora of opportunities, challenges, and innovations. With talk of Web3, heightened data security and privacy, automation, etc., coming to the fore, it helps to recalibrate our thinking and perspectives to keep pace with technology's evolution. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another exciting episode of the Zinov podcast, Business Resilience Series. I am Praveen Badada, Managing Partner at Zinov, and I will be your host for this episode. Today, I have with me Sanjay Srivastav, the Chief Digital Strategist at Genpact. Sanjay works exclusively with Genpact's senior most client executives and technology ecosystem leaders to mobilize digital transformation. His work helps the company's innovation programs and technology initiatives across the industries where Genpact serves globally. Sanjay is a consummate technologist who is deeply rooted in the innovation ecosystem and is also an advisor to Silicon Valley incubators as well as several startups and a limited partner in digital-focused venture funds. Welcome, Sanjay. Great to have you here with us. Thanks, Praveen. Great to be here. All right. So let's just get into the most important part of the episode where we get to hear from your experience, your learning uh, over the years. And with nearly three decades of experience working in tech, Sanjay, you are, like I said, a consummate technologist. You have seen technology and the internet evolve over the years. Can you talk to our audience a little bit about how different is the tech world today at the intersection of Web3, AI, automation, and many other cool micro technologies? What about these technologies are you most excited about uh, today, Sanjay? I think, Praveen, the first thing that comes to mind is I look back over the last 30 years and what an amazing point we are. We're doing so much digitization. We are accelerating the pace of change. Things are moving so fast forward. And yet, as I sit here and look ahead, I'm left with a very interesting takeaway, which is the pace of change is the slowest today that is ever going to be in the future. In other words, it's only going to keep accelerating. And the drivers for that are very obvious, right? If you think about it and you look at the increase in compute power that has come through, in many ways, math is no longer the problem. Compute is no longer the long pole in the tent. It's about how you apply innovation. It's how you reinvent business models and it's how you disrupt value chains. And then the technology is there to serve it. It's there to make it happen. One thing I was uh, particularly very interested about was the role of the CIO because uh, in these 30 years, there have been various ways where the role has been uh, shunned away, the role has uh, reincarnated, there's been uh, so much that has happened to that role. And I think your point really was uh, that the CIO of the future has to be both an insider as well as an outsider. Uh, I think it will be, if you can explain the thesis there, right, like the role of CIO, the leadership around CIO uh, in today's volatile times in particular, uh, I think that'll be super helpful for the audience. The role of a chief digital officer, the role of an information technology um, individual now it's not the back office role. It's not about delivering technology as a service. It's more about technology as a strategy. How do you reinvent the business model? How do you disrupt the value chain? How do you apply technology and serve up new ways of driving experience and sticky engagement and revenue growth? And to do that, you need two halves of the whole. You need a half which is all about outside it. So you need individuals in those roles that are understanding emerging technologies that sort of keep up with the trends in the investment and the venture capital industry, that participate in startups and understand those business value propositions, that experiment, that innovate, that try new things. And so that outside in 
is super important because you can't get caught in the four walls that come you're in. You have to sort of think and live and breathe outside of it. And so that, in my mind, is one half of the role. You need to drive change. You need to be able to get stakeholders. You need to have internal champions. You need to have stakeholders that can kind of get behind your program. And you have to institutionalize that across the company. It's a fundamental change. It's a grounds up movement and everyone needs to get on board. And really to be able to do that, you need the credibility, you need the belief, you need the championship, you need the engagement, which oftentimes means that you need to be an insider, that you need to have enough credibility in the ecosystem and access to the stakeholders. In our experience, Sanjay, when we talk to these CIOs or trying to go through that transitionary phase, they're very comfortable with the people process and technology part because those playbooks have been very set for the last 20 years. Obviously people have innovated and uh, done a lot of things around it, but by and large, there's a lot of comfort with people, process, and technology. The area where CIOs and CDOs and other CXOs are not really comfortable yet uh, is to your earlier point on the on the data side, right? So, uh, you know, just leveraging data uh, to to innovate on business models, drive change. I think it's still a tough nut to crack uh, for many many enterprises, right? So, in your observation, as you work with these Fortune 500 CIOs, what are the what are some of the best practices on data side? Uh, that have started to emerge, right? Is that at a point where there's enough maturity, there's the playbook which is set uh, for CIOs to start leveraging? What are you seeing in the market? That's a great uh, a great point you bring up because data is, uh, we're finding out very quickly, is, is now becoming the largest driver of transformative values across, as you look across those dimensions and you correctly picked up on that. So the big takeaway for me has been Data is not a destination, it's a journey because you know you have to keep working on it. And as good as you get, there's the next thing to take on. And so when you think about that, it comes back to strategies. Thinks it's about how you design your data strategy and how do you adapt it and how do you apply digital ethics and privacy and the latest capabilities. So one of the things I've learned early in the journey is basically you have to kind of get down to the core. You have to selectively forget some parts of the past or the history, and then you have to reinvent the new. I think the other thing that comes to mind is, listen, um, often when people think about data, they just think about technology data as kind of all in the same bag and sort of you move on to the next thing. The reality is couldn't be further from the truth. Data is its own asset class. It's not technology. It's a very different asset class. And so you have to give it sort of the respect. And by that, I mean, you know, seat at the table, seat at the board. Uh, you have to have the right people that understand it, that have a voice around the conversation. And then you have to build an enterprise architecture that is data enabled, that is data based. Amazing, love it. I think you talked about data as an asset class. Uh, one of the as other asset classes that has become important, uh, specifically in the pandemic and as we get into the recessionary phase, uh, is the people uh, asset, right? The human power uh, that companies, uh, you know, uh, rely on. Even uh, despite the fact that tech has evolved so much, the importance of human uh, is even uh, increasing on a regular basis. In your view, and you have you have run a large people business uh, in the in the storied career you've had, uh, Sanjay. What do you think uh, is the way forward for the for the tech supply ecosystem? As you think of the great resignation, the depressing macro environment, uh, how should uh, one as a company? How should one prepare uh, for what's the unknown unknown uh, as we think of the future? There's all this discussion about there's a war for talent, and you hear and read all this kind of interesting stuff. The reality is there's no war for talent. It's already won. Talent has won. End of discussion, right? It's, there's no ongoing war. And so the, some of the things that really come to mind is, um, first off, the technology curve is moving so fast. You know, there is no point hiring someone or thinking about a talent base that can do everything you need it to be done. So 
you know, the thinking about how do you bring in a talent pool that is curious, that is humble, that wants to learn and has this learning mindset, it becomes super important because you'll never have the talent that knows everything you need uh, to be known. And I think the learning is a big part of it. I also learned very early, and this has come to be the case now as we do more AI projects, that diversity is key, not because it's a nice thing to do, not because you, know, you need to meet internal numbers, not because it is actually right for the world, but frankly, just down to business, getting the best outcomes, getting the best results, getting the best models built, getting the best business nuance um, applied to the way you solve a problem and then apply it back to the world and the experience that it delivers. You need the diversity of talent that can bring different perspectives and make that happen. And so, you know, how do you how do you purposefully build a team that is diverse and how do you build a team where you're not hiding for skill sets, but you're hiding for appetite, for attitude, for learning ability? And then the last thing I'll say is, listen, many of us uh, over our careers will end up running very large organizations. And, um, and because diversity, because inclusiveness, and because curiosity and, and, and learning is such an important part, one thing that I um, uh, sort of have religion about is about talking last, speaking last. So, you know, if you're in a group forum, you want, you know, um, some of the newest members and the rest of the team to actually speak first because before you speak, and part of the reason for that is oftentimes without thinking, we can cut off a whole discussion thread or an angle or an approach that might otherwise come out. And so I think it's just a great practice to be mindful of speaking last as you engage in larger interactions and really get a lot more voices on the table because in the end, that allows you to make better decisions. Amazing, amazing, love it. So let's change gears a little bit. And I think as a thought leader, you've been uh, you know, talking quite a bit about ESG initiatives and green energy. Uh, in several public forums. Uh, what is your opinion on how today's enterprises are really driving uh, their sustainability-oriented initiatives? Is it still a checkmark in the box or uh, you know, companies are really serious about it? And the ones who continue to be on the fence, uh, what would be your recommendation to them? How critical uh, do you think is ESG focus uh, that corporations uh, should, should start thinking about as we go in the future? Yeah. Look, I think I'll start first by saying that just in general, you know, we all have this discussion about net zero and the thing, this things we're going to do to contain where we are. And I just think we need to start with the realization that we've already done so much damage that if we didn't do any more damage, this thing will itself create a lot large problem for us. And so anything more we do is a is a is a very bad outcome. And so this has to be top of mind. But the reality is it's coming through in every single discussion. I mean, shareholders are asking for it, board meetings are getting engaged. Uh, this question's on the table all the time. And, and I work with technology officers all, around, all over the world. And you can tell that on the list of items is a pretty big one. Now, there's a change that's happening, right? So most CIO, CTOs I used to work with, there was a reactive thing. You know, someone asked for this, the board wants that. We need to go present this at the next shareholder investor, you know, day, if you will. And so it's more of a reactive thing, right? We got to come up with these numbers. We need to manage and measure this, uh, you know, um, and, and, and it was kind of like you get one thing done and you realize the next thing, right? So can we take a proactive view? Can we go off and start putting together frameworks and approaches that sort of do that? And I see so many of my peers stepping up in a way, you know, not because, not only because they're concerned about the environment, which of course they are, but they have the toolkits and the analytics and the data sets that actually make a difference. And, you know, I often think about the climate problem and in the end, it's a data problem and it's a change management problem. And it's in, we know, and as a technologist, you know, the CIO's office has run some of the largest change management exercises in a company across the board. That's the case when you put in a new ERP or a new, you know, database or new snowflake or whatever, that's the whole mechanism you go through. And CIO offices are set up for programmatic management. 
And it's a data problem. It's about capturing. It's about visualizing. So long story short, I'm seeing a real um, pickup on um, on ESG and mostly carbon intensity is a pretty important topic in all of my conversations. And I think that's a trend that uh, is is just great for 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 the world. Great, great, great to learn that it's becoming a, a serious priority for the C-suite uh, executives. Uh, I think one of the last questions, I know we are running out of time, but uh, you've also been part of the uh, mergers and acquisition ecosystem where you've sold companies that you've founded and you've also bought many companies to accelerate the growth journey uh, for Genpact and even uh, the other companies that you work for. Uh, in today's time, right, if you were to if you were to consolidate all the learnings, the top three learnings uh, from your experience in the MA side, uh, what would those be? Like, what are the best practices you've picked up uh, as you acquired and sold companies uh, into the market? I think often people ask, what's the key to success? And, you know, there's long papers and lots of rationale. But in my mind, it just comes down to one thing. It's about culture. Um, because in the end, it's about people working with people to accomplish goals. And, and so the number one thing to look out for if you're selling your company or if you're in the process of being acquired, or if you look and acquire a company, is to start with culture and not necessarily with product or people or market share or revenue or profitability. Because those things are, are at a point in time indicators of what that business represents. But in the long arc of time, what's really going to make a difference is the culture and the simulation and, and the okay. symmetry and the and all of that that comes on it. So that's number one in my mind. I think the second one that I would say is integration. It's all about the integration. And so I see so many business uh, plans where, you know, there's so much excitement on acquiring a company that integration doesn't get enough, uh, enough of its own uh, um, sort of focus and coverage. And, and then maybe the third thing that comes to mind is strategic rationale. And it's so important to know why you're acquiring a company and to really reflect hard on that. Uh, one of the best practices I learned some time back is as you go through a strategic rationale discussion on acquiring a company, you've got a team of people that are going to come together and they'll discuss profitability and people and revenue and product design and this and that. And it's all this great discussion. And in that room, you need a person that you specifically designate and says, Praveen, I know you were really for this acquisition, do all this stuff, but for this meeting, your role is different. You have to explain to us why this won't work. What are the things that will break? What are the mistakes that will happen? What are we not seeing, right? And so you take someone who's a big supporter of the acquisition, put, put them in the reverse role. And, and, and that sort of a discussion and a rigor around thinking through the strategic rationale is super important. And so that that those are probably two or three things that um, come to top of my mind. But boy, it's such an it's such a important activity for large corporations because it's a great innovation lever. And it's such an important exit opportunity for investors and founders of early stage companies that, uh, you know, it's, it's just great to see. Perfect. Perfect. What are your non-negotiables in the way you lead teams uh, and specifically a large organization? What is your leadership trait uh, that you live by on a daily basis? Sanjay? I think the notion of best ideas win is an important notion because, you know, it isn't, it isn't just about notionally representing diversity or inclusion. It isn't just about, you know, being open to ideas and dissenting opinions. It is actually about embracing and endorsing a culture of teams that are getting self-aggregating teams, ideas that are coming through on the merit of the ideas and opportunities that are opening up that were outside the original remit. And so this notion of best ideas win is a super important notion because it, it it's the one thing that changes the innovation culture of a company 
because every single person realizes that the best ideas will win and there's this desire and this effort to have a dissenting voice, to have uh, have a debate on a topic that you know is gonna be well received um, as long as you disagree and then commit. I, I train as an aerospace engineer, right? My, my In my early education, my undergraduate degrees in aerospace engineering, and there's a book. I mean, there's books that are written on how to map airflows over wings and you know the stuff I used to do when I was uh, younger. Um, there's no such thing in the work we do today. This is stuff that we're building as we're going along. And so it becomes super important that you're open to understanding and you're bringing in a lot of diverse opinions because, you know, your opinion is not the right one. You know, once a quarter, turn to the people in your organization and ask them this question. What is the one thing you believe I do not want to hear? Not that I don't know, but I don't want to hear because your blind spots are super important for you to get around. And so use that, you know, and so this whole idea of best ideas when, you know, look for dissenting opinions, look for a debate before you make a decision, be conscious of the things that you are missing through bias and other, um, other um, uh, effects and be thoughtful about, um, about how you actually lead. I think those are some of the lessons I've taken away from my experiences. I think with this, uh, we come to the last section, which is a, a little bit of a <clears throat> fun section where I'm going to ask you three or four rapid fire questions. If you can give me a quick response, whatever comes to your mind, and th then we'll go from there. So the first one is uh, a book that changed your thinking and you would recommend to our audience. You know, it's amazing. Um, I just interviewed an author, um, uh, Admiral uh, Bill or William McRaven, who has written a book um, that is a simple book to read. It's called Make Your Bed. Um, if you don't know, uh, Bill McRaven was, um, he's an admiral in the U.S. Uh, Navy. He's, uh, he's just a lot of accomplishments. He was then left the armed forces and became a chancellor of the University of uh, Texas, Austin. But this book is all about, you know, simple things that you do as a Marine in day-to-day -day life and how that changes the way and how you get trained around it. And, you know, we're at different stages in our life. Uh, we all go through it. But I was a parent at the time with young uh, with two young boys, and I had a chance to come across this book. And it was such a simple book, and there were such lasting lessons in that book that you know take out of the Marines' life and training, and then apply it to simple things. And then the, the first one was actually just make your bed. Learn to get up every morning and make your bed. And the fact that as a Marine you can do a simple thing like that, and you can do it right every single day, allows you to start your day knowing that you've accomplished something and you've gotten the first thing done. And then of course you take on the bigger task and bigger task. And you know, these guys do a ton of stuff that is super interesting. And so um, anyway, that's a book I would recommend to anyone. It's a very easy read. I had my parents read it. I had my entire family read it. And then most recently I had a chance to talk to um, Bill McRaven as well, which is really a lot of fun. Very nice, very good. Your favorite restaurant in Seattle and why? Oh boy. <laughs> So that's a super interesting one. You know, by the way, I moved to Seattle about a year and a half ago. We lived in the Bay Area and this is a new thing for us. And we moved in the pandemic. So you can imagine we haven't really gone out that much. I'll tell you one restaurant I like a lot is a restaurant here called Canless. Uh, it's uh, if you're in the area, it's worth um, it's worth uh, um, it's worth a meal. Um, but the more interesting is why. Right. So this is a restaurant. There's a fusion restaurant between Pacific Northwest, obviously, where I live and Asian influences, mostly Japanese, but also Southeastern Asian. Um, the chef there is a woman, um, really talented woman from uh, the Philippines. And uh, I love this restaurant because, you know, it's like in anything else, the best things comes at the convergence of disciplines, at, at the intersections of different things. And this is about the fusion between Pacific Northwest and Asian, and it's a great experience. So 
maybe uh, maybe if you're ever in Seattle, let me know, and then we'll have to do a little diversion there. Lovely. That's that's on the list now. Um, Seattle versus Bay Area. You've lived both places. Uh, which tech tech ecosystem is better, and why? Hmm. It's super interesting you ask that, Praveen, because, you know, to be honest, when I moved from the Bay Area to Seattle, that was a big worry in my mind. And, uh, you know, uh, Silicon Valley is fantastic, first off, because the uh, tech ecosystem, incidentally, is super broad and and just really rich, right? So you can sort of say, hey, I want to be involved in semiconductors or flash memory, as an example, or you can go all the way to the other extreme and say, I want to be in biotech or SaaS or AI or, 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 or genetic uh, engineering. And you know, you 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 look at you know innovation in any area, and it's actually pretty well represented in the Bay Area. So it's a fantastic place to get started. Um, I was concerned I'd have to give that up to move to Seattle. And actually, what I found in Seattle is that the uh, to be honest, the ecosystem, the innovation ecosystem, is not that wide. But what it is is it's narrow but very deep. So if you are in cloud, or if you are in data, or if you're in AI, those three areas are super deep here in the Seattle area. And, you know, I just happen to be interested in those areas. So for me, you know, I am really enjoying being up here and um, and being in the innovation ecosystem. And of course, it's an indication because what ends up happening is, you know, the big cloud providers are here. There's so much AI work that's happening on the back of the cloud ecosystem and, and then data that, you know, a lot of those people come out of those companies and, and start new startups. And so the innovation comes in the back of, because they're seeing the problems. When you're, when you're working in cloud, when you're working on data at scale, you see the problems at the edge, and then you come out and fix them and try and solve for them by starting companies that bring it in. So you end up innovating around that. And so I'd say that it's different, right? It's not as broad, uh, but it's very deep in the few areas that I'm interested in. And so for me, it's been just uh, a great experience moving up here. Great, perfect. Uh, that actually brings us to the end of the episode, Sanjay. So thank you so much for sharing uh, all the perspectives and opinions with us so candidly. Um, as we see newer technologies taking center stage, uh, specifically in the post-pandemic construct, I think it'll be really amazing and interesting to see uh, how some of what we discussed uh, will, will eventually unfold. So I'm looking forward to a much brighter, much accelerated future uh, as we go forward. And thank you uh, really for, for sharing everything that you did today with us. Of course, it's my pleasure, Praveen. Thank you for having me. Great seeing you as always. Perfect. Uh, that's all for today. Thank you everyone for tuning in to this episode of the Zenov Podcast a Business Resilience Series. Uh, we'll be back soon with, with another episode and another leader. Till then, stay safe and take care. Thank you.